1: The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. But the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow up episode for episode 316 Clementi Returns. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co host, Mike Bussing. In today's episode, as always, we'll be fielding all of your questions, comments, theories from episode 316 and the entire case in general.
2: All right, Bob, we've got a lot going on in social media
1: this week. And also last weekend was the first ever crime con. That all sounds great. Before we get into that, though, I want to take a quick break and talk about the podcast Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories. You guys have heard about this podcast on our show before. It's one of my favorites. It has a very different spin on true crime. The stories that they're telling on this podcast are true crime stories, but rather than just telling the story, the host immerse you into the story with an audio drama style podcast. And they do this with an ensemble cast of voice actors. You can follow hosts Wendy and Carter as they take you on an entertaining journey through real crime scenes and attempt to solve real cold cases.
2: Unsolved Murders is an audio drama with a staff of screenwriters, an ensemble of voice actors, and a talented digital production team, bringing these cold cases to life. At the end of each case, the hosts tell you who they believe committed the crime. This is a true crime podcast. All the facts and cold cases are real.
1: Check out cold cases like the Black Dahlia, the Monster of Florence, the Grime Sisters, or the Zodiac Killer now. Unsolved Murders comes out every Tuesday, so visit iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast directory and search for Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories. And again, that's Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, or visit parcast.com slash unsolved to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash unsolved to listen now.
2: So, last weekend was CrimeCon, the first ever CrimeCon, and it was an awesome experience. I know I had a blast, and I'm pretty sure you did too, Bob. It was so great to meet all of our listeners who attended, and also to sit down and talk with some of the other podcasters that were there.
1: Yeah, CrimeCon was awesome, so this is kind of a funny story. So, I was approached by the CrimeCon folks last year, a long time ago, probably close to a year ago, asking if I wanted to attend and be on a panel or host or do whatever they wanted me to do. And my response was, what's CrimeCon? Had never heard of this thing before. Right, I've heard of Comic-Con, but what the heck is CrimeCon? Exactly. And I just was super busy and didn't really ever get a grasp on what CrimeCon was. Well, then in the last month, our good friend of the show, Jim Clemente, calls me up and says, Bob, you guys got to come to CrimeCon. I mean, first of all, it just gives us a chance to catch up without me having to fly to California. And as it turns out, they're having Jim and his brother, Tim Clemente, MC the entire event. So Jim had me convinced... We went ahead and made arrangements so Mike and I could both go. And I'm so glad we did. Like that, that was probably the coolest experience that I've experienced since I've been in this business. Oh, it was awesome. Yeah. And like Mike said, so in CrimeCon, first of all, the turnout was amazing. I couldn't believe how many people were there. I don't know what the number is, but there was a ton of people at this event and there was all kinds of panel discussions going on and classes and they had like a mock crime scene catacomb tours there was just there was all kinds of stuff happening like activities there was a live podcasting recording studio where i recorded a live podcast with Jim Clemente and Francie Hakes
2: yeah in front of a live studio audience i'd never seen anything like that
1: yeah, it was kind of cool, but the coolest part for me was I was sitting on stage with Jim Fitzgerald, who I just have just massive amounts of respect for his work for years and years. So for those that don't know, Jim Fitzgerald is the man that caught the Unabomber. He's the one that was actually able to profile his writings. By by analyzing his writings, was able to narrow down the suspect field based on the age of the offender and like where they went to school and what type of habits they might have. That was Jim Fitzgerald who did that and narrowed down and actually caught Ted Kaczynski. Very cool. Yeah, it was. So so being on stage with Jim Fitzgerald was was humbling, to say the least, uh, along with, of course, Francie Hakes and Jim Clemente. But for me, the coolest experience was Podcast Row, which is just this big hallway full of tables with all the true crime podcasters, or all the ones that made it there. And so I come walking in and I'm like fanboy, right? So the, like the the fans are there to see or our listeners are there to see us. And I'm just walking like, oh, there's a generation where well, there's Justin and Aaron. There's there's the True Crime Garage guys. And oh, God, hey, Brooks here. And and hey, there's Payne Lindsay. And, you know, so I'm looking at all these people and all, all I want to do is go meet them all. But I have to stand in my booth and play cool guy. You know, why? Yeah. well, I thought that's why you brought me so that I could man the booth. Yeah, that's right. You played cool guy. <laughs> yeah, That's right. And I went fangirling around the, <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the podcast row to meet all these people. But it was awesome. So like all day, Friday and Saturday, we had listeners coming up and introducing themselves, telling us their stories, taking pictures. It was just awesome. And then afterwards, I got to go and hang out with Nick and the Captain from True Crime Garage, Brooke Giddings from Actual Innocence and Convicted. Justin and Aaron from the Generation Y podcast, which that was really cool because Justin and Aaron and I have kind of worked together for a couple of years now. You know, we've we first kind of met during the Heyman Lee case when they kind of had a bad episode about that and it didn't go real well. So I was kind of helping them work through that. But I mean, everything from from business talk to uh, collaborating on different podcast episodes together. It's just been really cool. So to actually meet these guys in person, be able to sit down and have a drink with them was awesome. And then, uh, of course, Payne Lindsay was there. Got to meet Payne, and he's another one that I've worked with before but have never met in person. It was just an awesome, awesome experience. So I guess I would say I can't recommend, and this is not, by the way, any kind of like paid endorsement. Like We're not getting anything for this, but next year, CrimeCon is going to be, what they say, like May? I think the weekend of May 4th. Yeah, it is. The weekend of May 4th, and it's going to be in Nashville, Tennessee. And I believe Monday the 19th, tickets are already going to go on sale for that. Uh, I'm assuming at some point they're going to give us some kind of a promo code so y'all can get a discount. I think they're selling them at a discounted rate now because they're for the early tickets. But I will tell you right now, after this experience, after getting to meet all these other podcasters uh, like uh, Nancy Grace was there. I got a nice picture with Nancy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you did. (laughs) (laughs) And um, Aphrodite Jones was there getting to meet Jim Fitzgerald and just just it was just an awesome, awesome, awesome experience for the first one ever. I would highly recommend any of you that are into any kind of true crime stuff to go check out CrimeCon next year in 2018, because we will most definitely be there. I will, I will, Definitely, now that I know what it is, I'll never miss it again. I think I'll, I'll have that on my agenda every year from now on. Absolutely. It was a great
2: time. All right, now let's get to social media. This week, we had some discussion on the fan page about your interview with Jim Clemente, and there were a few things you brought up that some of the listeners felt weren't
1: consistent with the investigation. So maybe you can help clear this up for us. I think I know that there was a particular post on the fan page where I think as of sitting down to record this, there's like 120 comments on it. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you, can you just bullet point uh, piece by piece and we can walk through those? Sure. In your discussion with Jim, you said that Swindell said that she had
2: dark colored hair. Since that was never found in the record, where did that come from?
1: In none of the statements was it ever clear what her hair color was. And at trial, he said it was like the color of his. But, of course, we have no idea who he's pointing at when he's saying that at trial. Uh, the reason I meant, and, and keep in mind, what, what what the listeners have to realize is that interview you just heard with Jim Clementi was not an interview. It was not intended to be an interview. So Jim and I were going to talk because I wanted to um, talk to him about his new podcast, Best Case, Worst Case. And so we, I was going to get him on the phone. And while I had him on the phone, I was like, well, hey, Jim, maybe I can record a quick little piece of as kind of a follow up to your profile. Now that we have some of the questions you were asking before, we have those answered. So we're recording, I was expecting just a couple of minutes and then move into the best case, worst case. Well, it just turned into an hour long conversation. So really what you were hearing was like a fly on the wall. Like that's that's me and Jim talking. That's what that was. It wasn't like me setting down and bullet pointing interview topics. That's why some of these things may seem like inconsistent, like, hey, we haven't heard about that yet. The hair is a perfect example of this. Jesse James Swindell told me when I talked to him on the phone that the woman had dark hair. Like, he feels like it was brown or black from what he could remember. From the record, we don't know exactly what color it was. He was, you know, indicating to someone it was hair color like that. He told me that he thought it was dark. So when I told Jim that he was saying, you know, he was asking, did he describe race or anything? And he did not say the race of the victim that he saw being drug into the car. I did make one kind of, I I said kicking and screaming as just kind of uh, like a phraseology.
2: Yeah, that was mentioned, too, on the discussion.
1: Yeah, and and so and that was a misspeak because I believe if I remember correctly, uh Swindell said at trial that she was kicking. I'm not sure if she was hollering for some reason is sticking out in my mind as for what was said and, and I I'm, I'm trying to remember right now.
2: Yeah, uh in uh, cross-examination, Jesse James Swindell said that she was not screaming and might have been kicking.
1: Right. Yeah, and 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 so and when I but when I said to Jim when I was like she was kicking and screaming, I didn't I mean it was a mistake on my part, but I didn't mean specifically that he said she was kicking. And screaming like that would be, you know, if if I'm if I'm dragging my kid up to bed because it, he doesn't want to go to bed at night, I would describe him his resistance as kicking and screaming. Right. More of a figure of speech. Type That's the word. I couldn't figure out the figure of speech for the figure of speech <laughs> that I was looking for. Um, but as far as the hair is concerned, yeah, J- Jesse James Wendell told me that he remember having dark hair. So that's why that was – I said that to Jim as far as the color care, hair. But the, if you have to listen to the context of the conversation, it it wasn't, Jim, this is important. This woman had dark hair. The context of that part of the conversation was, no, he didn't remember much about the victim. Basically, that's that was the whole deal. Okay. Is uh, He didn't remember much about the victim. Uh, he didn't know a race. He was kind of unclear on the color of clothing, kind of on the other hair, maybe dark, wasn't sure. So that was the context, not that she specifically had dark hair.
2: Okay, and then another point that they brought up on the discussion was the ratio of white guys to black guys. Um, Confusion between three to one and two to two.
1: Yeah, so the issue there, so like I told Jim that there's been a range from, I think I said from like three black guys and one white guy to two and two. To actually, I don't remember if I said this to Jim or not, but it's even been three white and one black guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, and that discussion again was that's inconsistent. That's not what the report says. Well, you have to look at everything, right? So you have his affidavit uh, that I think in the affidavit is where it says three black guys, one white guy. Yeah. You have to look through Watts' investigative notes when he talked to him. And there were Swindell at one point tells him two years later, I'm not sure about the race of the guys. And then when I spoke with him on the phone, he told me he thinks he remembers there being more white guys than black guys. And so that's, again, I when I, when I told Jim that, again, the context was we don't really know the race of all of them. Because the story has gone of the, for that detail anywhere from three black, one white, to three white, one black, and everywhere in between. Uh, which is, you know, like I had said before we knew that, um, I had said when I first went through his statements, Jesse Swindell's statements, that it's it's understand this is happening very quickly early in the morning. You know, he's witnessing, you know, something crazy happening. As as I said, I think I think my phrase I used was uh, one of my dad's favorites, which he was just seeing asses and elbows everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and she's being drugged under the car. And then later you're trying to think, was one black guy, two black. I mean, there could have been two guys there could have been four guys. The races could have been different. I, That's to be expected. And I think the point he was making was, well, yeah, but Jim said that you should look at the old memories more so than the new, which is true. But the point being, when I said it to Jim, what I I have to be very careful, anyone speaking to Jim about a case, you have to be very careful not to speak in absolutes because Jim will call you on your shit. Sure. Yeah. You know, if you say there was there was. Three black guys and one white guys. Then Jim will come back with, "How do you know that? Mm-hmm. Are you sure? How do you know? Has that been consistent? How you know?" Th- and so, what I was telling Jim was, we really don't know because there's been a range of, of a variety, all the way from initial affidavit to interviews with police to trial testimony. There has been a range for that part of the memory. So, what I was telling Jim in that point was that part of the memory is not really concrete, right?
2: All right. We also had listeners ask why you didn't mention an alternate theory about Kenneth Ray Williams to Jim. If you ask me, Bob, I would assume it was maybe because you find the Grove Rats slash white Camaro lead the most promising. Is that kind of what's
1: up? Well, yeah, it is. But again, this wasn't an interview. Right. So if it was, hey, Jim, can you come on and do a follow up profile? I would have had bullet pointed statements. say, okay, well, now we have we don't really have more information about Kenneth Ray Williams. Um, We're going to get a little bit more about him in Sunday's episode. Some new information, but it really doesn't, it's not relevant to the case, but it'll be interesting for everyone. Uh, but there's nothing new really for me to tell him about Kenneth Ray Williams other than the fact that he's had these sexual assaults later, or which, but the thing is, I talk to Jim all the time. So Jim and I have had the conversation about him just in passing. A lot of times if Jim is out driving somewhere in L.A., which L.A. traffic is so much fun. Uh, and he's got a long drive. He'll just call me up and we'll just chat, and we'll be talking about the podcasting world. What's I mean? I mean, you understand? Jim Clemente and I are friends. Besides, mm-hmm. besides just uh, us working together,
2: and not every one of your conversations is put on the air.
1: Exactly. So I didn't in that conversation bring up Kenneth Ray Williams because I've discussed Kenneth Ray Williams with Jim on on a couple of other occasions, and it just it doesn't make sense. Right. And um, I think I think this was like Gary Yam. I think was the one that was having this conversation on Facebook, and I know that he's somebody that doesn't. Like profiling, that's part of the deal. Mm-hmm. He said that he just thinks it's which you know again. So that to each their own. Some people don't. I I find it a useful tool. Yeah, um, it's not an end all be all, uh, but looking at it from a quote profiler's perspective or uh, behaviorally speaking, but when, when we say. Profile, and I hope I'm not walking on questions you're planning on asking later. No, go ahead, Bob. Um, but when we say profile, like people are just like putting, like they're they're looking at criminal minds, where Hotch walks into the local law enforcement and says, "All right, we we're looking for a 21 year old male who was beaten by their mother in these days and uh has a 4.0 grade point average. Go find him." That's not what we're talking about here. We're looking at so what we're looking at is we're looking at Kiao's wound patterns. We're looking at the circumstances of the crime scene where she was found. We're looking at her risk factors. And then, and then we're piecing all of that together uh, to try to determine what makes sense. We're looking at you know motive, opportunity, all those things. So in her case, she's got these crazy sporadic wound patterns all over her, right? Right. She's got uh, nineteen altogether knife wounds. Yeah, I think so. Um, and and front, back, side, every different direction, angle. If this was done with one single knife, then it had to be no bigger than a three-quarter inch wide steak knife. Right. And then that three-quarter inch wide steak knife had to, in most of its stabs. Create a an inch and a quarter wide gash, which you remember when we did our experiments,
2: it, it couldn't be done.
1: No, I mean, and I'm sure there's a certain set of circumstances where that could happen if uh-huh. the knife's sharp enough. Yeah, uh, but our knives were pretty sharp, and we couldn't make it happen even once, much less every time. So, in in order for a scenario to fit with Kenneth Ray Williams, it has to be that you have this lone parolee that was stalking Kiao and a her, which all of his other crimes had a clear motive. You know, the theft, rape, whatever they were, you know, even the arson was was arson to cover up a theft from what we can understand. Uh, So, like, he just decides out of the blue he's going to murder this woman for no good reason. A 53-year-old, you know, five-foot-tall, hundred-ish-pound woman, and he's unable to control her. He's with one knife stabbing her in every different direction possible, all the way around her. Somehow gets from probably the most likely place where I would guess that attack would happen, which would be up by Apache. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would assume it wouldn't happen in broad daylight, right out where her body was found. But even say if it was there, it's just and then not not steal anything, not take her ring, not take her necklace, uh, no sexual assault that we're aware of. And maybe it's something that went wrong. So it's we're not ruling out Kenneth Ray Williams, but it's just it's so hard in order to fit all of those things. You know the the wound patterns, the victimology, all all that stuff in the crime scene to fit all that stuff together into a scenario that makes it plausible for Kenneth Ray Williams to be the offender is just really, really difficult. It had I just I I can't even in my mind as we're talking about now imagine what that looked like. Like I feel like in order for that to happen, like Kia was pirouetting down September lane while he's chasing behind her with a knife. Two knives actually most likely and stabbing with both hands as she's like spinning around and jumping fences and it just he just keeps stabbing and stabbing and stabbing and stabbing and stabbing. And stabbing, and stabbing. Until he finally gets her down, and then doesn't do anything after she's down, as opposed to uh, the the <laughs> Grove rats, it was just a very like you you
2: you applied your your thorough analysis to what you might think that would look like,
1: and I, I came I, up with the with Yao Pier I, wedding. Towns. Yeah, yeah, Towns. And, it, and it it
2: like makes perfect sense, but it's so disturbing. Oh God, <laughs> <clears throat> sorry. I don't even know if we can use that for bloopers or what. Like, I was, I was a little t- legitimately like recording aside. I was taken back by that. Like, what the? <laughs> f-? like, <laughs> like,
1: but when you think about it, like, it is crazy, and, and we're certainly not intending to make light of this. I think yeah, all of our right. listeners know that. But, yeah. but it, it it is like in order to like, how does one person by himself, like not in a vehicle, just walking, have to stab her twenty times in three hundred sixty degrees all the way around her body from every different angle direction? depth width of cut like that's it's 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 a crazy scene to and then and there with no motive at the end and then also consider the fact that i guess getting back serious for a minute considering the fact that uh where there has been sexual assault with kenneth ray williams whoever attacked keow and killed her was unable to control her i think we can all agree on that i mean those stab wounds all over her say she was fighting and getting away
2: yeah to the bitter end
1: right so Take that and then and then compare that to Kenneth Ray Williams' other sexual assaults. He was able to control his victims. And we don't know much about his victims. I'm I'm still trying to find information on that. But he was able to control those victims in the most difficult way possible. The the coercive control necessary to rape someone by forced oral sex is an insane amount of control. That 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 is that is an extreme ability to control. Now, there could be this was a child, but only one of those charges was a child personalities all those things come into effect but
2: now really quick do you know what he what he did to to maintain control Did he ha- hold
1: him at knife point or? i don't know they said there was a knife involved yeah uh and this it's something jim and i have talked a little bit about I mean, that's it's not something you see very often because and i don't want to get graphic or get into it but i'll just say that that act for a man to to violate a woman in that way is risky Mm-hmm. It's really risky, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, in order to do that, you have to have complete confidence and control over that. The confidence that you have control over that victim. So it's like the person that's capable of that. Their mo is always, you know, undercover, sneaking in in somebody's home, uh, theft. To, to just, just one day, I want to just, just for no reason whatsoever, just stab this woman in broad daylight. Doesn't doesn't make much sense to me. So mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's why he wasn't in there. But then. You know what and I'm sure if anybody reads this discussion, you'll see it may seem like it's it's so hard through text to put it through, but like I was getting a bit testy and i and, and that's not true, but I do get a little bit frustrated because uh this particular you know, gary who's who's a great i'm love gary gary is 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 a a great contributor on the fan page he starts a ton of discussion, he does a lot of polls, and even if I disagree with him or other people disagree with him, it's still generating some awesome discussion so absolutely yeah you know so I've got nothing bad to say about gary but in in that discussion, he's just insisting that. And you guys can read if you go to the Truth and Justice podcast fan page, you'll see this massive thread uh, about this. But he's suggesting that, and he has been for the longest time, that the Grove Rat's lead is just ridiculous. And you know, it, as ridiculous as is, I just made the Kenneth Ray Williams lead sound. His opinion is that the the white Camaro Grove Rats is just as ridiculous that it just bonkers that it just couldn't happen. And again, he cites back to the fact that the you know we're just looking at this because of profiling. If you take the profile away and take away, I think his words were take away Jesse James Swindell's statement and you got nothing, right, with his white Camaro. And he says that the timeline's wrong. Well, it's 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 not wrong. That's not that's not accurate. And so so let me break down again real quick why I think that the white Z28 Camaro lead, which has led to the Grove Rats, is I I agree with Jim Clemente that this is a solid lead. Now that doesn't mean they did it. It doesn't mean that we're ruling anything else out, but I think I think Jim put it very well when he said this is a solid lead and I would pursue it vigorously. Uh, and that's what we're doing, because that's where the evidence is pointing us right now. Now, first of all, I'll say, too, that a profile is a tool in the toolbox for us, It's for any investigator. It's something to consider and compare to the evidence. But at the end of the day, evidence always trumps the profile. Sure. You, you need to know that. So it's not like, you know, I have an offender's DNA on a crime scene, but in, and the guy's a 35-year-old white guy, and the profile was, we're looking for a 19-year-old black man. They were like, Nope, wasn't him. It has to be a 19 19- It's not how it works. Mm-hmm. It's nothing more than an investigative lead. Uh, it, it not, not just because it fits a profile. But this this is what we know. First of all, let's talk about timeline. Am I just completely messing you up? Or is this all right? No, you're doing fine. Okay. So let's talk about timeline for a minute with the white Z28 camera. With, with, let's say with Jesse James Windell's statement. So Gary Yam's statement is that the timeline just can't work. It doesn't make sense. Well, let's look at that statement. So it, this this is a memory. That, it's the memory of a fifth grader evolving over time so there's the question of did it happen a day night we know at trial that Jesse James Wendell says he thinks he remembers it being kind of between day and night Uh, and his affidavit which was written four months after the fact was similar that it was early hours of the morning between day and night kind of which would be about right but then what has been suggested is well it wasn't really though the sun had been up for an hour it's day okay well by their assessment and opinion I guess that they would consider that day Understand they'll back up even further to the detective's notes when Detective Royster spoke with Jesse James Swindell's mother, who said that the day it happened, they told her. And, it, and by the way, this is not just just Jesse James Swindell. I mean, that's what's used in trial because Mama Judy's dead. But for our investigative purposes, there were two people: the aunt, a grown-up aunt, Mama Judy, and Jesse James Swindell. Both say they saw this, so that's two witness, two eyewitnesses to this. They, that day, told Jesse James Swindell's mom, Mama Judy's sister, what had happened. And the next morning, she says that she sees it on the news and says, oh, my God, they killed that woman. So timeline wise, the day after this happened, everybody seemed to agree that it happened around the time of the murder. Or almost exactly the time of the murder. Because the time of the murder was disclosed in the newspaper. We have that article. So and then four months later, fifth grader says, I think it was somewhere between day and night. Well, they were driving around looking for Ronnie, Ronnie uh, Blackwell that morning. So they probably started while it was dark and probably finished while it was light. So it was somewhere in between that time. And, and like again, he's not looking at a clock. He's using sensory memories. He's trying to remember what was going on right then, what he was feeling, what he was seeing, things like that. So I don't think that negates our timeline at all. Now, two and a half years later, Ronnie Blackwell says... Well, I think they they picked me up at midnight that night. And that's when, you know, Watts threw the case away or threw that lead away. But two and a half years later, Ronnie Blackwell all of a sudden's like, yeah, on that one night, two and a half years ago, they picked me up at midnight. Well, I can tell you right now, that's not accurate Mm -hmm. because Jesse James Wendell was able to read Z28 on the side of the car. That didn't happen at midnight. I mean, in my opinion, that happened during daylight hours. And all the other evidence seems to indicate it happened in daylight hours. So timeline wise, I think he's solid. So now what we have is two eyewitnesses now just because again just because judy didn't testify at trial doesn't mean that her statement is any less valid royster the detective at the time believed this was their strongest lead he said literally wrote in the report that he believes that these two witnessed the offense based on all and again just like you know here we do for 60 hours of investigation in a week and give everybody 40 minutes of it on the podcast well, just what we see written down in Royster's notes is just what he wrote down. That doesn't mean there wasn't all kinds of other conversation and leads and investigating that happened. Yeah. And in his opinion, he says that he believes that these two did, in fact, witness the offense. So we got, we've got we got the timeline. We've got the, the fact that it seems to make sense of the location where this happened. And then let's not forget the detail. Remember, Jesse James Wendell is in fifth grade, doesn't drive, doesn't live in that neighborhood. Writes his affidavit four months later and says when they peeled her on the corner, they hit a tire in the road, and there happens to be a tire in the middle of the road on that morning in the crime scene photos.
2: And that goes back to the Clemente interview when Jim said that's a pretty hard detail to
1: uh, fabricate, yeah, or to make up, or to, or to include into your narrative if it didn't happen. If it didn't happen, right. yeah, it's it. In my opinion, it happened. In my opinion, yeah. So now that leaves us with our lead of the white Z-28 Camaro is that we have two eyewitnesses that both say they saw this attack happen and the abduction in, in some kind of the Z-28 Camaro. I think Mama Judy thought it was light gray and, and he thought it was white. As a matter of fact, Swindell insisted that it was white. We have the fact that in his affidavit, he clearly re- written four months later, he clearly remembered the car peeling around the corner on September and hitting a tire. And we know from the crime scene photos, there was a tire in the middle of the road. So the the timing of what his mother said, the two eyewitness accounts, the tire is all leading to believe that somewhere around that time. So let's say it's maybe maybe it's not Kiao. Well, somebody right there was attacked by a white Z-28 Camaro at that time. At least that's the way it seems based on the statement. So then. This is a lead that can't be ignored, okay? And, and and that's been kind of my argument on. I guess you can call it an argument with me and Gary on the on the fan page. Is I can see you saying I don't think this is the strongest lead, but to say that we should ignore it is ridiculous. I mean, it's the strongest lead. We have, we have two eyewitnesses that saw an abduction yeah. at that spot on that morning, right when she was killed, uh, a half a block away from where her body was found. Like, ignore that; it's silly. And so, because we have that lead, we pur- we we pursue that lead. And then we find out, okay, there here are some guys that were driving a white Z-28 Camaro in that neighborhood at that time. And the group of these guys, and this started actually, and, and I, I can't really get into how we landed here. But this started from the, the police investigative notes tracking down names. And as we tracked down the names, it's boom, there's the Z-28. And that's how it kind of snowballed from there. And you remember going through that process.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We end up on this group of people. All of them, after this point, they were all in their late teens, early 20s, except one guy uh, during that time. And after that point, they all have violent criminal records. They've been in and out of jail and prison, every single one of them. So, And they had a YZ-28 Camaro right then. I mean, I mean, one of these guys died two years ago because he was shot. Right. I mean, this is the, this, these are the types of people we're dealing with. Exactly. In the crowds that they roll in. Uh, Jesse Eldridge, our guy, said that he remembers some of these guys because they were dealing meth back then. He knows one of the guys because he remembers that he was one of the meth dealers that was around back then. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's just this group of guys were trouble back then. And then, uh, you know, he's brought up like the the teardrops are just a fantasy, right? Like these should be ignored. You know, I mean, it was kind of condescending that you should, you know, oh, now we're just counting teardrops to see if this will just fit our profile. That's not what it is at all. The teardrops. As silly as that may sound, are a legitimate lead. You know there there are there are three reasons people would put teardrops on their face, a, a teardrop tattoo, uh, especially now that this guy. I mean, the, these these people are dealing with. These aren't just like you know some just random yuppie somewhere that doesn't know what it means. These guys are involved in crime and people who have been in and out of prison their whole lives. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. So this those teardrops are not put on his cheek by accident. So it's. Uh, a teardrop tattoo for some people. like it, it, it was always been for every person you've killed. You've dropped. It's a bragging rights. And it, the problem is that you can't be convicted on that. You can't say it's a confession. But that's why people do it. Uh, but then it's turned into, Jesse, that some people say it's how many times you've been to prison. Well, this guy's never been to prison. He's been mm-hmm. to jail a bunch of times, never been to prison. And then you have how many times you've been raped. Some people will put it on. Those are the only three reasons for those teardrops I've ever heard. So he hasn't been to prison so either this particular man was raped three or four times in his life and put it on his face, or he's killed three or four people. Based on some interactions that I've seen between him and these other quote grove rats, I'm gonna go with the latter. They they oftentimes cryptically are talking about the fact that uh they've done things in the grove that they can never talk about again and they have all these secrets. I to 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 look at those and say, Oh, those are just tattoos, they don't matter. Well, they do matter. You know, when we're looking when we're gathering evidence and saying, Are we on the right track, are we going the right direction? Well, maybe still, but all of these things together tell us that we have a legitimate lead with the Grove rats. Yeah, you know, and, and again, could be a complete red herring, but right now, it's I'm not ready to throw the lead away because it, it happens to fit a profile. I think I think the fact that it fits the profile that Jim gave us, the person who has literally solved thousands of murders over the over the course of the world, tells us that we should be looking for a or multiple. Young, inexperienced uh, offenders, and that the crime scene was dynamic and it took place over a range of space that 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 happens to fit. And he didn't know anything about this lead at that time. Happens to fit with all these other circumstances means that so far we have not found the piece of evidence that says you're going down the wrong path. You know, and if we find that, we'll move on. We don't have. There's no bias here. We don't have blinders on. We're just trying to find the truth. And I'm going to keep fervently Pursuing the truth until I find something that tells me I'm on the wrong path. Nice speech, Bob. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) sorry. You took that one away. You have this whole outline over there that I just rambled for 25 minutes straight. That's fine. I'll take a breath now. All right. I think it's time for a little palate cleanser now, Bob. Yeah, it might be a good time to take a break here and hit reset so you can figure out where we're at and the uh, questions you wanted to ask. Yeah, we'll take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsors. And then I got one more thing I want to bring up
2: from the fan page before we get to voicemails. All right. Sounds good.
0: This is NASCAR driver Tony Breidinger inviting you to make a pit stop at Raising Cane's for craveable, hand-battered, cooked-to-order chicken fingers. Chicken up! Crispy, crinkle-cut fries. Hot potato, coming through. Buttery Texas toast. Toast walking. And secret cane sauce. Topping off now! Turbo-charge your chicken fingers and get them even faster when you order online or with the Raising Cane's app. Go, go, go! Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers, one love. (laughs) Raising Cane's is not affiliated with NASCAR.
2: Okay, we've got one last question to cover here before we get into the voicemails. On the fan page, listener Katina writes to us, she was wondering if the driver of the Z28 might have been pissed off because when the car hit the tire, it messed the car up. I think it was Jesse James Swindell's cousin who said that the car had sat a while in the small strip mall. Maybe it wasn't drivable. What do you think about this? You think
1: it's a possibility? Yeah, it is. You know, I've I wondered for, about Ronnie Blackwell's statement for a while now, that the car was parked over there beside the, remember, the strip mall across the street from the apartments. Uh, Ronnie Blackwell, who is Jesse James Wendell's cousin, said that the white Z28 Camaro that was attached to the Sean or Shane Quayle was parked over in that lot for, I think, a couple of weeks or a month, he said. <laughs> if they messed the car up and, and made it undrivable for hitting the tire, I guess it's possible that that's why it might have been parked there for that amount of time, but... You know, and, and Jesse Eldridge said that most of that strip mall was abandoned. But I, to be honest, I don't believe Ronnie Blackwell, I guess. Sure. And I almost wonder, you know, he was connected with some of these people. And it makes me wonder if maybe he might be involved or might have been involved. I don't know. Um, I, There's no evidence to indicate that other than the fact that he was out and missing that morning and they were out looking for him. Or well, maybe even at the very least, what he was trying to do was throw the scent off of his friends, too. Right. But he kind of threw the scent right onto his friends. He gave the police <laughs> their names. And uh, said that they were attached to the to the white Z28 Camaro. Uh, but maybe he was part of a different group of friends. I don't know. It just it just seems so odd that uh, the um, car would just be parked there for any reason. But I guess, yeah, if it was on drivel, maybe they thought if they had a good place to hide it and park there, as opposed to taking it to a mechanic where, you know, I, I, if you think about it, if they knew there was an eyewitness account, I guess just thinking out loud, literally in real time right now, say they peel around, they hit the tire, Jack's the car up. They know there was a car that witnessed them doing that, so they have to figure maybe if those person tell the police then the police will go around looking for body shops to see if anybody got jacked up from hitting their hitting a tire I guess I don't I don't know uh, I actually asked Jesse Swindell a few weeks ago if he can put me into contact with Ronnie Blackwell and he said that he doesn't talk to any of his family anymore and that Ronnie's probably in prison that's where he usually is according to Jesse James Swindell.
2: So yes, no. Oh yeah,
1: um, yeah. I I don't know. I guess it makes sense if indeed the car was parked there. Uh, if it was because it was undrivable, that could be related to the tire. Sure. Yeah. I th- I think that's. I think it's possible. I think. Any, I mean, at this point, anything's possible. It's a good thought. Thanks, Katina. All right. Uh, from here, we've got a couple of
2: voicemails, and then that's going to do it. All right. Let's do it. Remember the woman at CrimeCon who wanted you to take a video for her friend? Yeah. I thought it was really cool because you gave her a T shirt and you sent her a message and now she sent you a message. Okay? So check out this message for you from Christine.
1: Hey Bob and Mike. This is Christine from Lancaster PA. Um I just want to say thank you so much, Bob, for making me that video at CrimeCon. Um my friend went over there and you let her make a video for me and send send her a shirt and I, I greatly appreciate it. You mean feel so appreciated and thank you for all you do and thank you for being so amazing. You made my year <laughs> have a great rest of your day bob and keep up what you're doing it's great oh wow thanks christine and you are more than welcome I was happy to do it and hopefully next year you'll be at crime Con and we can meet you in person i just think that's so cool all right this next voicemail comes from jordan in florida bob hello my name is jordan Roddy. i'm in san rosa beach florida i love your show and i was listening to the episode today with jim clemente and i was thinking that sometimes in small houses uh, couples will use a spare bedroom to put uh one of their clothes in so maybe Kiel kept her clothes in the sewing room and so she would get dressed for walk in the morning um, and put the knife perhaps in her girdle so really if that was the case, the sewing would be a logical place to keep her knife. Um, that's probably inconsequential, but I um, just wanted to share thoughts on that. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. That's a good thought, Jordan. I think that is definitely possible. In, in my experience, uh, it's usually the husband that has to move their crap out of the, uh, the master bedroom into the spare bedroom to make room for mama stuff, but... Uh, I think that's possible. We just—it it is a good point. It's a really good thought, but I mean, there's just—we have no way of knowing if that was the case. But uh, as I always say, like in, I love when people are just listening to the details and applying their own expertise and experience to try to come up with some solutions. So that—that that could be why the knife was in the sewing room, uh, as maybe that's where she kept her clothes. Good thought, Jordan. Thanks. Okay, and this next voicemail comes from Jesse in South Georgia. <laughs> is this—is this my hometown hero? This is hometown hero. So as Mike's getting ready to play, Jesse's message, just a little uh, anecdote. Uh I believe Jesse sends me Snapchats every single day. <laughs> every day <laughs> just about n- anything like what's up Bob driving down the road. Is he like your biggest fan or what? I don't know. I think I'm his biggest fan. But uh he's a cool guy. He's always he's it's just funny when I saw him come through the voicemail because I recognize him from Snapchat because he's he snaps me on a daily basis. I always know what kind of beer Jesse's drinking or what's going on with him in his life.
0: Hey Bob, it's, uh, your hometown hero
1: here, Jesse, down in South Georgia. Figured I'd give you a buzz. Uh, y'all really keep me, uh, entertained on my rides now that I've been doing so much traveling. But anyways, just, uh, thought I might, uh, ask a question. See if, uh, one, if you think we got enough evidence, uh, eventually that if we can get Jesse out of jail, that they will find the real perpetrator and be able to, you know, actually maybe get them in jail eventually. And I was just thinking about this. Do you think there's a possibility that, uh, Keow's son maybe knew the parties that did this, and that's why he's staying out of it. Anyways, I know that's kind of a wild speculation. but figured I'd throw it out there. Thanks, man. See ya. All right, good to hear from you, Jesse. And that was something that I thought from the very beginning that maybe Kirby, not because he didn't talk to me. It's it's not a shock at all, actually, that Kirby isn't talking to me. It just It's just not a normal thing for a lot of people to do in a circumstance like this when we're dredging up these old wounds. Uh, but I always thought, like, you know, he's about the same age. Maybe he knows the guys that were involved in this. But the reality is, I don't think that he does, and that's for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's from that neighborhood, but he actually went to skyline high School uh other side of town. It wasn't Samuel or Spruce High School that he went to. He went to Skyline High School, so he wouldn't have been rolling in the same circle, so to speak uh but also from some a few interviews that I got just this week uh that' give us a little bit more background on Keao and Ken and Kirby, it seems that Kirby was just not in that crowd; he wasn't in in the crowd of the people that were. You know, breaking the law, doing drugs or anything like that. it sounded like he was very much into his studies and didn't socialize a whole lot with anybody from that neighborhood, so it is possible, certainly it's possible, but I just I don't think that it's necessarily likely okay, Bob, that's it for voicemails. Thank you, everybody, for your thoughts and theories this week. yeah, it's good to hear from everybody and apologize for hopefully you guys i guess were interested in my twenty five minute rant without taking a breath uh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I just, I, I, I love talking about the case. And that's why Jim and I have those conversations like that. Like any opportunity to just kind of, I'm just one of those people that thinks out loud. So yeah. so when I have the opportunity to to just talk things out, I'm literally thinking about them as I'm speaking. So um, I've enjoyed the episode. Enjoyed hanging out having a nice little conversation with you, Mikey. It's been a pleasure, Bob. Yeah. And uh, for all of you listening now, make sure you tune in on Sunday for what I consider to be some pretty groundbreaking new information. Uh, but you have to see for yourself on Sunday. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the shows created by PutThemInAsong.com. Want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Also, side note, I actually got to meet one of our transcriptionists this weekend, Sarah Mueller, and she mentioned to me that I haven't been changing the order of the names of the transcriptionists around for a while. So this week, you get first billing, Sarah. I got to have drinks with Sarah and her dad so Sarah Mueller, Sarah Hoyt and Desiree Dunn are our transcription team and thank you to Chris Brinkley of Consultants.com for creating, managing and maintaining our website as always thank you to all of you make sure you stay in touch send us your thoughts, theories and ideas through our email theories at truthandjusticepod.com don't forget about this voicemail line at 269-224-2833 and like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod however you do it, stay engaged stay in touch but as for now we're signing off i'm bob ruff and i'm mike bussing and this has been truth and justice Wow, that's awesome. You've said that four times. Really like awesome today, huh?
2: That's awesome.
1: Awesome time. Brighton nicks that part about inviting me, Bob. Fine, <laughs> fine, fine. <laughs> Th- thanks for inviting me, Bob. Yeah, thanks for inviting me,
2: Bob. What's wrong with that? You invited me.
1: <laughs> it's your job to go. You work for me. Literally paid you to be there. Like... My
2: job requirements still aren't even clear to me. I'm just like, "Oh, right." <laughs> like let just show up and Bob's Bob's taking me on vacation. Yeah, <laughs> like I just it's, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, uh mm.
1: Square
2: square
1: squares squares square. All right. Say something witty. All right. Right, right now it's time for something witty. <laughs> I've never seen you look more angry. Than I you mean, do. It, this is, you're, you're pissing me
2: off. <laughs> than right you now. do right Pretty now. Bad, you know,
1: <laughs> I'll just sit here and be quiet. All right, or I just think just make sure you say something witty, you know, to bring it's us time into the for... break. Let's take a break. <laughs> Taking a break. <laughs> it's not off duty.